You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual There was one record album, just one, in my parents' collection that me and my siblings were forbidden to listen to. What happened next was so predictable that to this day I still wonder if my parents really wanted us to listen to it and they were practicing reverse psychology on their kids without a license. It was a comedy album, George Carlin's 1972 Class Clown. It was Carlin's fourth album out of 20 and the bit it was famous for, one of Carlin's signature bits – was also the bit my parents didn't want their kids listening to. Or maybe they did. Yeah, there are 400,000 words in the English language, and there are seven of them you can't say on television. What a ratio that is. 399,993 to seven. They must really be bad. They'd have to be outrageous to be separated from a group that large. All of you over here, you seven. Bad words. You know the seven, don't you, that you can't say on television? Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits, huh? Those are the heavy seven. Those are the ones that'll infect your soul, curve your spine. And keep the country from winning the war. Shit, piss, I thought of Carlin this weekend and the seven dirty words you can't say on television when the Washington Post broke the news that the Trump administration has its own list of seven dirty words. They must really be bad. Outrageous. All right. I'm going to rattle them off. I hope you're sitting down. Smelling salts handy. Here we go. Diversity, fetus, science-based, vulnerable, evidence-based, transgender, entitlement, and tits. No, actually, no tits. Tits didn't make the list, but diversity fetus, science-based, vulnerable, evidence-based, transgender entitlement did. They are the new heavy seven words that'll infect your soul and keep you from winning that grant. Or if you're employed by the CDC, prevent you from speaking plainly to the American people or coming to the aid of, what's that word again? Oh, right. Vulnerable. What are the banned words? Vulnerable communities like Mm, the diverse, another bad word, transgender banned community. As the Washington Post reported last Friday, policy analysts at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta were told of the list of forbidden terms at a meeting Thursday with senior CDC officials who oversee the budget. In some instances, the analysts were given alternative phrases. Instead of science-based or evidence-based, the suggested phrase is now CDC bases its recommendations on science in consideration with community standards and wishes. An anonymous former CDC official suggests that maybe these words aren't quite banned, according to the New York Times, but maybe just flagged as the kind of words that might set off Republicans in Congress who could retaliate against the CDC, which is out there trying to prevent disease by slashing funding for the CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services. A lot of people were freaking out all weekend about the words on the list itself. There is a meme going around with the words. Everyone's posting it to Instagram. I did too. 
And I think we should be freaking out about this and freaking out about how Orwellian a move this is. And yeah, the words themselves, diversity, fetus, science-based, vulnerable, evidence-based, transgender, entitlement. But I got hung up on the phrase, that phrase that researchers and scientists at the CDC were urged to use in place of science-based or evidence-based. The CDC bases its recommendations on science in consideration with community standards and wishes. Wishes. We live in a country with tens of millions of people who wish transgender men and women didn't exist. We live in a country with tens of millions of people who believe climate change can be wished away. We live in a country with millions and millions and millions of people who wish we could go back to an imaginary time before we were so diverse. And these people, these wishers, they punch above their weight in Washington thanks to our highly undemocratic U.S. Senate and our insanely undemocratic electoral college. Our politics and our health and our safety are distorted to soothe the anger, paranoia, and toxic nostalgia of these wishers, including the wisher and chief who is sitting in the Oval Office. We outnumber them, the diverse reality-based community, people who believe in science and basing public policy on evidence, and as we've just shown in Alabama and Virginia, we, the reality-based community, we can out-organize and out-vote and just plain out-out, as in toss-out, the lunatics who are destroying our country one federal agency at a time. Lists of banned words to say nothing of demanding that scientists abandon the scientific method. Scary. Lists of banned words are scary. People who draw up those lists are even scarier. And when those scary people are in power and they get away with banning words and phrases, they quickly move on to banning books, banning dissent, banning rival parties, and ultimately banning people. November 6th, 2018, the midterm elections, mark it down, your chance, our chance to stop the madness if we organize and fight and are not complacent or complicit. Enjoy your holiday, everybody. I'm going to enjoy mine. Let's all rest up because we have all, all of us got to hit the ground running on January 2nd, 2018. All right. Coming up on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, twice as long, no ads. Go to savagelovecast.com to subscribe. Vani LeClerc is here to talk with us about flirting, how you do it now. I don't want to say post Me Too because we are deep in Me Too. How you do it, how you flirt. Vani LeClerc, columnist for the Scottish National, Guardian contributor, here to speak with us about her viral piece. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy Adversaries. My name is Mark. I'm on the East Coast. So my wife and I have been married for 14 years. Uh, we have four kids. And we have recently chosen to have an open marriage, which is great. My wife is happy. I'm happy. Sex has never been better. The problem is we've had difficulty with the complications. First, our kids. My wife plans to meet someone she has, she has grown very close to. The problem is he's across the country. Do you have any tips to help ensure our kids, all being under 10 years old, are left emotionally stable through this? Next thing I'm wondering about is our family. We live with my wife's parents, and a solo trip to see another man would raise questions. Do you have some tips to how to come out to our kind of family? Um, as happy, but still in an open relationship. There are lots of people in Polyland who are out to their friends and family and children and parents about 
They're open relationships. They're happy, healthy, functional, stable, open relationships. That's certainly an option. NTKB is certainly another option. You can run your sex life on a need-to-know basis. That's what NTKB stands for. When you look at your parents and you think about the details of your sex life, maybe you want to be fully open. Maybe you want to tell them everything. But what do they really need to know? What would they want to know? And the flip side of this is, of course, if your parents were in an open relationship, if they were swingers, would you want to know those details? One of the things that's frequently discussed when smart, pointy-headed research type people are talking about monogamy is sexual monogamy and social monogamy. Sexual monogamy, of course, is these two people only have sex with each other. Social monogamy is these two people are socially monogamous. They are paired off. And to an outside observer, they may be perceived as sexually monogamous as well, but in actual fact, that's really up to them and they may not be sexually monogamous. A great many people, a great many couples out there are socially monogamous but not sexually monogamous, but they default because monogamy is this assumption. It's a default setting. They default to the perception of monogamy and I don't think that that's necessarily a terrible, terrible, awful thing. I don't think it's analogous to being closeted about your sexual orientation. That said, I do think more people who are in open relationships need to be out to undo the stigma that's attached to open relationships. People have lost their children in custody disputes because they got out of one relationship and now they're in an open relationship and the ex-partner brings that up in court and a bigoted, sex-phobic, open-phobic judge denies them custody, sometimes even visitation. People have lost jobs because their bosses were so offended by their open relationships. There are risks to being out about this, including estrangement from parents and and family members. But as gays and lesbians demonstrate, as queer people have demonstrated, coming out and telling the truth about who you are is how you fight back against that stigma. It's how you tear down the shame. It's how you end the hatred and discrimination. Not that it's over yet, but it's how you minimize it over time. So I guess I'm coming down on both sides of this issue. I'm doing a little bit of a straddle. I don't think your kids, who are all under 10, really need to know that mom is flying off to sit on somebody else's dick. I don't think they could really understand that at under 10. And if you look to your parents with whom you live in, maybe you're economically dependent on them. Maybe you live with them because you must. And if they freaked out, that could have terrible consequences for your family and your children. Then you have to decide whether or not they need to know right now or you can risk telling them right now. You can make something up. You can lie about where your wife is going and why she's going there. It would be great if we lived in a world where everyone could be fully honest and fully out. But do you live in that world, your little world, your personal world in that house that you share with your wife, your four kids, your parents? Can you be out? Can you be safely out without fear of retaliation, without fear of sturm und drang and drama. And if the answer is yes, then maybe come out to mom and dad. Not yet the kids. I don't think the kids could quite understand or wrap their heads around special friends when they're all under 10 years old. But mom and dad, sure. But if you can't come out to mom and dad, then yeah, you're allowed to lie to mom and dad. Mom and dad don't get to have all the information about your sex life, about what you and your wife do Mom and dad aren't entitled to every detail about your sex life and how you and your wife organize your sex life and who else might be involved in your sex life. You can, I think, ethically be socially monogamous and allow your parents to assume that means you're also sexually monogamous, whether or not you are. So the out-of-town trip for the wife, a conference, an old friend from college is getting married. She can't go to the wedding, but she's going to go to the bachelorette party. You can tell 
a little white lie that buys you and the wife some time. If it being a solo trip is what draws the family's parents' suspicion, go with your wife and take a walk when your wife needs the hotel room to herself. Have a seat in the lobby. Have several seats in the lobby while your wife meets up with her man friend. Maybe you can get on Tinder and meet up with a lady friend at the same time. Full disclosure is great. Complete transparency is wonderful. More people who are in open relationships being out is going to reduce the stigma and make it safer for more people who are in open relationships to be out in the future. But NTKB, you are allowed to run friends and family, parents and kids on a need-to-know basis. Ask yourself right now what they need to know and ask yourself whether it's safe for them to know, particularly your parents. Hey, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a gay male finishing residency in beautiful Fresno. I have three older siblings, and we're very close. I recently had my brother-in-law and sister independently tell me, uh, ask me my thoughts about them getting divorced after the last kid moves out in four years. After I presented a judgment-free understanding, they both told me that they were, in fact, planning on doing this and have already started setting up the process. Both parties are under the assumption the other is not considering divorce. They lead a comfortable life and do not argue or fight in front of the kids, but are genuinely unhappy. My question is, should I tell them both about the other or because they asked me in confidence that I still don't share with them what could potentially make things easier? Your first loyalty would be to your sister, right? Presumably. They both confided in you, the sister and the brother-in-law. They both shared with you this secret plan that they've both independent of each other hatched to divorce each other. And they're both probably living in some sort of tense limbo, worried about how this news is going to be received. When your wife announces to her husband that she's divorcing him, she's probably a ball of tension about how that's going to go, how he's going to react, how that's going to be received, how devastated he's going to be or not going to be. And he probably feels the same way. What's your, her reaction going to be when I tell her, when I lower the boom, when the shoe drops, da-da-da-da-da. It would be a relief to both parties if you just blurted it out. You could do it in front of both of them. I think, though, because sister, first loyalty, you should go to her and in confidence reveal what her husband told you in confidence. Technically a violation of his confidence, but a violation I expect that both would welcome because they would both then be relieved of the tension of the secret plans they're making to divorce each other. And if they could be straight with each other and honest with each other about the fact that they're both already on the same page, perhaps the divorce could be more amicable in the end than if they're both plotting in secret, growing ever more tense with the assumption that the other does not wish to divorce and that this is going to blindside the other. And it's not. This will be welcomed by both parties. So I think you should blurt it out. I think you should tell them. It's as if two people both confided in you that they would really like to have creme brulee for dessert, but they're not sure what the other person wants. They don't know what to do about that. And you can say to them, well, you know what? You both want creme brulee. So there's no issue here. There's no real conflict here. Have the fucking creme brulee. You both want a divorce. There's no conflict here. There's no real issue here. Have the divorce. Order the divorce. It's lovely. And it's what you both want. So get it. Hey, Dan. I'm calling from the South. Um, I have a question for you. So the other night, my boyfriend and I were out at a bar and we were talking to this guy for a while. And eventually in the conversation, he kind of leans in and in a hushed voice asks us if we are the couple from um, the app. I forget what that threesome app is called. It used to be called Threender. And 
I forgot that like three years ago, my boyfriend and I made a profile when we thought it might be hot. And then we realized really quickly when people started messaging us that it was more of a dirty talk thing for us. So when the guy asked us, we both said no. And it got super weird. And then the guy like went up to go to the bathroom and then like sat at the other end of the bar. Like I felt like I shamed him. Because we were like, no, that's not us. Because actually when we said no, we kind of had forgotten about that profile. Um, but my question is, is it ethical to kind of out somebody? Like, was what he did ethical in the app world? Like, should you ask somebody if they are the person from the app if you're not sure? I mean, the picture of us was really old. We both have different hair colors. Like, I can't believe he even recognized us. So, yeah, that's my question. If you see somebody from an app, which is usually discreet, is it okay to ask them about it if you're not sure? And did I shame him? If there's no shame being on an app, if there's no shame signing up on the three-way dating app site and looking for a third, there's no shame in being asked if that was you on the app, or there shouldn't be any shame in asking if that was you on the app. Putting your pictures out there on a publicly accessible website, advertising your sexual interest, that's a public thing that you did. And you met somebody who saw this and inquired, asked if that was you. And I don't want to fault you for saying it wasn't you because maybe you didn't want to have a conversation with this guy about all of it, about the fact that you were interested in having a three-way once, but then you took out an ad and you got a bunch of responses and you realized this was something you wanted to reserve for dirty talk and fantasy only and you're not actually interested in a third, which he might take as you brush him off, and that could have caused its own set of hurt feelings, I think. Saying, no, that wasn't us is perfectly acceptable, perfectly fine. But that wasn't your question. The question was, is it ethical to out someone? Outing is a brutal tactic that should be reserved for brutes in the political space. Outing isn't for dentists and lawyers and people on apps. But you guys outed yourselves when you took out that ad and you put your faces on it, when you put the picture on it. You put that out there and he approached you and it sounds like he approached you rather discreetly and respectfully. He didn't scream it into a microphone in the DJ booth. Hey, there's that couple. I saw them on a threesome ad once on an app. He leaned in and said, hey, is that you guys? I saw you guys. Is that you guys? Totally okay. Totally permissible. Not a violation. Nothing unethical about it. It embraces and accepts really the normalcy. It normalizes what you and your boyfriend were doing when you got on the app. And what you were doing is normal and healthy. Nothing you should be ashamed of. And he doesn't have to be ashamed of himself for asking the question the way that he did either. Hey, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old female living in the Midwest. I'm the oldest of four siblings, and my youngest is a brother, and he's 13. Recently, he came to me with a personal question regarding his private area. My father passed away in 2014, so um, him coming to me as a, a mature figure in his life wasn't really out of, out of the blue. Um, but he asked me if he should start shaving his pubic hair. He said that sometimes it's itchy and uncomfortable, and it kind of seemed like it was maybe something he was talking about with his friends and kind of wanted to gauge what I thought about it. My response was that if that was something that would make him feel comfortable, that he should do it. I told him that I wouldn't want him to feel uncomfortable. I told him that he should do what he wanted to and not do it because of his friends or, or for some other reason. The next morning, my mom found 
my little brother's pubic hair in his bathroom sink. And after talking to him, he, well, not talking, yelling at him, he told her that I gave him permission. And she directed that anger toward me and was yelling at me, telling me that he was too young and why I would say that to him and how he could hurt himself. And I was really perturbed by this because I just kind of felt like I was trying to make him feel comfortable about his private parts and trying to give him an answer that I would give if he was my kid. I know this because when I was young and I wanted to shave my pubic hair, I was afraid to talk to my mom about it. So I just did it anyways. And I would rather my younger brother feel like he can come talk to me or one of my other siblings with questions rather than just doing it and potentially hurting himself. My whole thing behind it was just trying to make him feel comfortable, and my mom thought that was completely inappropriate. Is 13 too young to start shaving your pubic hair? I don't think someone needs to shave their pubic hair when they're 13 necessarily. I certainly didn't shave my pubic hair when I was 13. I don't remember pubic hair arriving, causing my crotch to itch. There might have been some other issue, a medical issue. Did he pick up? scabies or crabs on the wrestling mats at school. There's a couple other places you could have gone in that conversation with them because the onset of your adult pubed up life shouldn't be accompanied by scratching and itching necessarily. So it's a whole other combo you could have had with your 13 year old brother about what might be the issue there above and beyond just uh, you have pubes now. However, I do think 13 is certainly an age where you can communicate to someone that their body is their body and that they have a right to control it and they have a zone of autonomy and privacy around their genitalia, around their swimsuit areas, around their entire persons. And your brother, you could have said to your brother, didn't need your permission to shave his pubes. He doesn't need anyone's permission to shave his pubes. If he'd like to remove his pubic hair, he is certainly free to do so. And I think that's what you need to go say to your fucking mother. I would say to your mom, if I were you, if you don't want him to be a pubic hair removal fetishist in the future, you better back the fuck off. You making a big screaming, yelling argument, a sex shaming argument about how he is styling his pubic hair or removing his pubic hair, or what he's doing with his genitalia at 13 is going to give him a complex. Do you want to give him a complex mom about his junk? No. Certainly not if you're invested in your kid being as quote-unquote normal and boring as possible. Then you don't jump down their throats about what they're doing with their junk when they're 13 years old. You leave them alone. Your brother is entitled to a zone of privacy. Also have an intervention with your brother where you talk about the fact that you acknowledge the fact that your mother is crazy and controlling in a way that's intrusive and sexphobic and hostile. And so he's going to have to do a little – stepping around mom's damage and mom's issues while he is living in her house. That means don't leave crusty socks on the floor. That means don't leave a pile of pubic hair in your sink where mom can find it. Don't leave things out there that your mom might freak out about when she stumbles over them. Not because he shouldn't have a right to collect his pubic hair in a jar by the side of his bed if that's what he wants to do. But mom's nuts. And unfortunately, mom is in the power position in this house. There is a power dynamic there, a power differential parent and child that unfortunately he is going to have to work around for the moment. So tell mom to back off. And of course, she most likely won't tell your brother mom's crazy. So hide the pubes, put them in the toilet, flush the fucking toilet, toss them out the window. It's good for the garden. 
Don't leave them where mom's going to find them. Hey, Dan. I am a 22-year-old gay man, and I am currently seeing a 27-year-old gay man. And it's been interesting. He's beautiful. He is definitely someone I would like to be with. We've been seeing each other for about four months, and at one point, we were even calling each other uh, boyfriends. But last week, a little over last week, or over a week ago, he broke up with me. And despite that, he's still been at my apartment, holding my hand, kissing me every day since the supposed breakup. The reason he wanted to break up with me is because he said that us not having sex was having too much of a negative impact on me, and he didn't want to give me a relationship that wasn't something that I wanted. So the reason we're not having sex is kind of vague. Um, It's not because either of us don't want to have sex. I for sure want to have sex, and he tells me that he's very attracted to me and would also like to have sex. But... Whenever I try to ask him why we aren't having sex, he says very intangible, kind of hard to understand reasons. Like, I don't feel like myself right now, and I want to get back to that before I start having sex again. Or I want to wait and make sure that this is real, which was the first explanation he gave me. Or just anything like that. Things that don't really make sense to me, and when I press him on, I press him on it, he typically gets frustrated and just says, you don't understand, you just don't get it. And maybe I would have a little easier time with this if we hadn't had sex already. When we first met, we were having sex pretty regularly for about a month until he decided to cut things off. And I feel pretty bad because I've put my love life and my sex life on hold for this guy and I haven't seen anyone else since we've met because I feel like if I do, I'll ruin my chances with them. And I really honestly just don't want to see other people. So what do you think? I don't think I would do what you're doing right now. I don't think I would put up with this bullshit. I don't think I would put up with someone who was playing head games with me the way this guy seems to be playing them with you and sending out such confusing mixed signals, giving you such confusing mixed signals. He stops having sex with you for reasons. He breaks up with you, doesn't want to be boyfriends, and yet continues to show up in your apartment to kiss and cuddle and hold your hand. He wants, it seems, all of the tiny sort of but emotionally satisfying and significant aspects of an intimate romantic relationship without officially being your boyfriend for, again, reasons and without having sex with you anymore for reasons. I wouldn't put up with that. I would tell him to go away, figure it out, and when he's ready to be my boyfriend, then he can come to my apartment and hold my hand and we can cuddle and watch a little Netflix, and then he can suck my fucking dick, or I can suck his fucking dick, or we can fuck each other's butts. But this relationship limbo, inexplicable, mysterious, mixed signaling that he's subjecting you to, yeah, no. And you need to draw a line. You can still wait for him. You say you don't want to have sex with anybody else. You say you hope it works out, whatever it is that's going on with him or his dick that he's not telling you about. And you can tell him that. You can say, you know what? I'm not going to date anybody else for a while. I will wait, but I'm going to wait alone in my apartment with some pornography until you figure it out. And then you can come back. And when you figure it out and you want to be my boyfriend and have sex with your boyfriend, because I'm looking for a boyfriend that I can be romantic and sexual with. I want the bundled package. Give me a ring. And if I haven't gotten over you and I am not dating someone else, we can pick things back up and you can tell me what the 
fuck was going on and why you were playing these games, why you broke up with me and didn't, why you continued to be physically intimate with me but not sexually intimate with me. When you are ready to give me those explanations and you're ready to date and fuck, give me a buzz. And if I'm single, we can pick things back up. If not, you're shit out of luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old woman who um, just recently got out of a almost three-year relationship with a guy that I thought was going to end in marriage. We had discussed marrying each other. Um, he is the same age as me, and he is from China. I had met his family. We got along great. Um, the trouble came is when our parents met each other. Um, our breakup was very abrupt, and he said that his parents thought the cultural differences in our families would be too great to overcome. Naturally, I was extremely upset, but considering that we had a loving relationship, um, I took it for what it was, and I had no ill will towards him. That was less than three months ago, um, and recently, just a couple of days ago, I've discovered that he is uh, dating an 18-year-old girl um, who is white also, and so I'm just kind of wondering if he was really telling the truth to me. Um, you know, like I said, we had a great relationship. He's a very honest guy, um, and he never gave me any reason to ever doubt anything in our relationship, and he made it very clear that it was the family and culture thing. Um, so naturally, I'm even more hurt than I was before, and um, I was wondering how and if I should confront him. I really would like to sit down and talk to him and really understand what's going on, even though I kind of feel like it's not really my place, um, you know, our relationship's over, but I just feel like he lied to me even though, like I said, I know he would never do that. So if I do decide to say something to him, I guess I'm asking, what should I say? And should I say something? Would you want to be with someone? Let's say he would have you back. Would you want to be with someone who allows his parents to manage his love life or would lie to you and tell you that his parents were managing his love life? Because it's one or the other. Either he let his parents veto you after meeting your parents. And I'd be very interested to know the details of what went down when his parents met your parents. And then they exercised their romantic veto power over their son's marital prospects or would lie to you about that. Would shift responsibility, shift blame for having to end the relationship. Oh, I don't want to dump you, but my parents insist. My parents have told me that just the cultural differences are too great, too stark for us to be together. So as much as I would like to be with you for the rest of my life, my parents, if we would lie about that, either way, you wouldn't want to be with them. So why the fuck do you need to get on the phone with him? Why the fuck do you need to get on the phone with this guy who is being ordered around by his parents or lying to you about it? The fact that he's dating some 18-year-old white bitch right now after leaving you because the cultural differences were too great isn't necessarily by itself proof that he was lying. Perhaps he's just rebounding off this 18-year-old, passing the time until he gets serious and settles down with a Chinese girl that would meet his parents' approval. You can't know what's going on with the 18-year-old or what his motivations are. The fact that he's rebounding right now off an 18-year-old white girl, that could point to, yeah, he was lying to you about his parents exercising a veto power, his parents insisting he had to marry a Chinese girl. Could be lying to you about that. Or this could not be a serious relationship. He could just be rebounding off some nice 18-year-old white girl and intending 
in a couple of years' time, six months' time, to go get serious about finding a Chinese girl that his family approves of. Either way, it's none of your fucking business anymore. And getting an answer from him, and you'll never know if you got a truthful answer from him if you press him on it, isn't going to give you closure. Closure is not something that other people hand us. Closure is something that we do for ourselves. He is behind you. This is over. You got dumped for reasons that make sense or don't, but you got dumped. You want some closure? Close the fucking door yourself. Put him behind you. Stop thinking about what he's doing now or who he's doing now or what it means. He was not the person that you thought he was. You have to provide closure for yourself. Closure is not something people give us. Closure is something that we do. This relationship is over. You got dumped. I'm sorry. You got hurt. Put it behind you. Close the door yourself. This is in your past. He is in your past. Go find a hot 18-year-old of your own and move the fuck on. Hi, uh, I'm a 38-year-old male, cis male, married, father, and straight. And I'm calling because I've been thinking a lot about uh, consent, especially with all the news lately. And uh, I've had this memory of when I was a kid of two two girls when I was a teenager, young girls. I remember them saying um, that, like, the way to kill a mood... <laughs> was to say, uh, can I kiss you? And, uh, they, and I don't know if, if that was true and if that's still true, but it had a big impact on me. And because I think that had been my, <laughs> my signature move <laughs> up until that point. From then on, I generally tried to avoid asking. And so, um, it, there were a few occasions where it led to some cringeworthy, you know, un, unwell, not well-received going in for the kiss. And, but more often it just led to me being so nervous and scared to make a move uh, that I never, that I just never would put the moves on somebody. Uh, so I was wondering if that's still a thing. That's, and part of why I'm, I'm really wondering is because, as I mentioned, uh, I'm a father of two young boys and presumably I will be teaching them about the idea of consent someday. And so I want to know if, if things have changed or just what, how to approach teaching that. A little trip down memory lane here. I was 15 years old. I was in the apartment of the slightly older boyfriend of a friend of mine. My friend, a girl left and I was left alone in the apartment with her boyfriend. And we were kind of, sitting close together on the couch and then we were kind of cuddling on the couch and then my head was in his lap face up on the couch and we were just talking and then he looked at me and said, what would you say if I asked to kiss you? And it was the most intensely sexy erotic thing that anyone at that point in my life had ever said to me. It was so fucking hot. And to get to answer the question in that moment with the affirmative was so hot, even though it didn't mean sleeping with my friend from school's older boyfriend and that was all sorts of wrong. But it was all sorts of right as well, concurrently, paradoxically, at the same time, right and wrong, part of what made it so delicious, I guess. But he asked and there was nothing unsexy about the ask. People have this in their heads that asking someone for their consent in the moment to kiss them is 
to kill the mood. And I think that's because we see it on TV and we see it in movies constantly. We see that moment where both people are like kind of leaning into each other and we're trained after seeing this again and again and again that at that moment you lock eyes and you shut up and then someone, usually the dude, leans in and initiates the kiss. The problem with that scenario is someone might lean in and initiate a kiss and have misread all of the signals. Even if there was erotic attention, if there was some attraction, they could misread the signal around whether that person wanted to act on the attraction. I certainly wanted to kiss my friend's boyfriend earlier in the evening. I did not because he was my friend's boyfriend and I didn't know if he wanted me to kiss him and I wasn't out and he wasn't gay and ah, so we waited and hung out and the tension built and built and built. And when the ask came, the kiss was almost an anticlimax after the ask. The ask was so sexy. So I just rejected this, this nonsense. These, this thing that you were told 25 years ago by a couple of teenage girls that even to this day torments you about how you were doing it wrong because you were asking. No, you were ahead of the curve. You were doing it right 25, 30 years ago when you were a young person and you were asking the girls that you might want to kiss if, they, if you could kiss them. You don't have to stop and ask in a formal way. If things are sexy, the erotic tension is building, it is possible to drop your voice an octave and ask somebody if you can kiss them or to just tell someone how you're feeling. I really want to kiss you. And then they'll say, that would be awesome. Or I wish you would already. Or you know what? Please don't. And it's important to get that you know what? Please don't because you don't want to misread someone's signals because you could traumatize them because you don't want to because of dickful thinking, which is a problem for a lot of dudes, to misread someone's signals. Because your dick can convince you that they want to kiss you when what your dick is really convinced of is the fact that you want to kiss them. So you got to do your due diligence. You got to interrogate your dick. You got to ask the question out loud. And that's what you need to tell your two boys. You need to ask this question. Now, some people are always going to think the ask is going to kill the mood. But leaning in for the kiss or just kissing someone because you have this hunch that they want you to kiss them, that can kill a career. That can cost you a job. That can get your ass kicked out of college. Don't fucking do that. So tell your boys, you gotta ask. And nobody wants to be coached on how to be sexy by dad, but you should tell your boys that it's possible to ask that question without pressuring someone, using I statements, I really want to kiss you, and without killing the mood. That you can frame it in a way that itself rolls with the mood, that, that, that rolls the sexiness forward by inviting the other person to co-initiate with you, not for you to initiate all over them by yourself. And Vonnie LeClerc and I get into this in much more detail. We unpack this at great length in this week's magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. So if you want to hear more about this, Dad, subscribe if you're not already a subscriber. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. Um, I have a question when it comes to sex alternative. Um, I've been with my husband for 13 years at this point, and I am currently expecting our third child. And as it stands, everything has been great with us in our history. But with this particular pregnancy, it seems that anytime that we have had sex, I get a massively painful UTI within approximately um, 12 to 24 hours of intercourse. This has happened each and every time that we have had intercourse. And needless to say, I am extremely gun shy about continuing to have sex for the rest of my pregnancy. However, 
I recognize that this is a two-person relationship and I can I would be better served for our relationship to try and find a way to satisfy my husband during the duration of this pregnancy. However, um, my gag reflex is now extremely sensitive and things as simple as even brushing my teeth or blowing my nose trigger my gag reflex. So needless to say, blowjobs at this point are out of the question. So my, my real question is, what else can I do to help um, my husband during this time? I mean, I'm fine with kind of not necessarily going without, but maybe self-satisfaction at this point, because I am very gun-shy about vaginal intercourse, but I want to find a way to keep him satisfied as well. Um, I'm trying to come up with ideas, and we've tried different positions to see if maybe there is an, an angle of entry issue, and frankly, it does not make a difference. Fortunately, my doctors have been great in terms of putting me on a preventative, so that way um, we can reduce these instances in the future, but I kind of have developed a mental block, which I feel is somewhat understandable at this point. We've tried ass play in the past, but it didn't really seem to do anything for either one of us. So if you have any additional suggestions of things that I could try to try and keep things, you know, interesting for the remainder of this pregnancy, which is approximately about five to six more months, I would really appreciate it because I, I, I feel like I need to be able to do something. Why, it says right here on the internet at AmericanPregnancy.org that pregnant women are at increased risk for UTIs starting in week six through week 24. So, yeah, it's not a coincidence that you've been getting a bunch of urinary tract infections. Apparently, that is something that pregnant women are more susceptible to. What can you do? Well, you could do... Some vaginal, you can have an experiment with some additional vaginal using a female condom that provides some coverage for the labia uh, and maybe a dental dam stretched over that you're going to have to hold in place over your urethral opening. That's going to be awkward. That's going to be a little inconvenient and probably not all that sexy. So you might want to go with some of the other standard options for non-penetrative intercourse, including outer course, mutual masturbation. You can get a fleshlight and incorporate that. Get creative, roll around, or go online and order a cheap pair of latex pants, seamless latex pants, and then lube it up. Use a lot of silicone lube, and then you can put his penis between your thighs and clench your thighs together with your entire pile of junk, including your urethral opening, covered up and protected, and hopefully not then at risk of having bacteria rubbed into them by your husband's body as he grinds away, and let him enjoy that. And I'm here from the future, here from personal experience, to tell you that is pretty enjoyable feeling. A little different. Good sensation, though. You can actually come doing that. It's a little crazy, a little fun. And that's what you're going to have to do to stay intimate. You're going to be intimate over the next five months of your pregnancy. Get creative. I do think mutual masturbation is perhaps the most reasonable and easily achieved accommodation. But a flashlight could allow you to provide your husband with some of that penetrative sex, vag-like sensation without risking uh, another awful urinary tract infection during the course of your pregnancy. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Vani Leclerc, a feminist writer and weekly columnist at The National in Scotland. There has been a lot of conversation in the wake of Louis C.K., in the wake of Harvey Weinstein, mm -hmm. in the wake of Al Franken, in the wake of Charlie Rose, in the wake of Kevin Spacey, about 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 this about about men and the way men behave and some 
very mm-hmm. stupid, mm-hmm. very idiotic men out there have said they now feel like flirting is something they can't do because sexual harassing is something that no one should do. And where's that line? And Vani LeClerc, in her really terrific piece at The Scotsman, wrote, There is no gray area between sexual harassment and flirting. If men don't know the difference, now is the time to learn. And she joins us today to teach my male listeners the difference. Hey, Vani, how are you? <laughs> hey, Dan, I'm really good. How are you? Uh, I'm really good. Um, I have to say, I really loved your piece, and I also loved the flowchart, the, the the graphic that it was broken down to. But for listeners who haven't seen your piece uh, and who haven't seen your flowchart, which I retweeted uh, and we'll push out again when this airs, mm-hmm. what is the difference? Where is the line between sexual harassment and flirting? Well, I think, you know, there's been a lot of pushback about this just now because I think, um, you know, people are, people, there's a threat of exposure just now. And I think that actually something that we think is common sense, that we we all know what flirting is, we all know what harassment is, isn't actually common sense. And I think when it comes down to it, you you can break it, you can uh, differentiate it in, in two, two ways, essentially. So flirting is play. It's a two-way interaction, a shared experience that builds intimacy, um, you know, and it needs two willing parties to do it. You can't flirt at someone you can only flirt with them which they think is the really key thing here mm-hmm. um you know and and the other side of that is that harassment is about an abuse of power it isn't a collaborative interaction like flirting is it's a one-way interaction it's uh, it's an asymmetrical experience um that causes distress to another person and it puts one person's one uh, above the other person. So I think that's really the difference between the two, that flirting is play and harassment is about power. And that does seem, again, to be a common sense distinction. And I'm suspicious of anyone out there, male or female, who can't make that distinction. Because w- what I hear them saying is, I don't want to understand the difference. because yeah. Not because I'm flirting innocently and successfully with people, but because I am harassing and I want to continue to mm-hmm. harass and get mm-hmm. away with it and mm-hmm. tell myself that I'm not harassing, I'm flirting. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important point to make. I think that anyone who's saying that they can't tell the difference between flirting and harassment is just is willfully being quite obtuse. I mean, I think the thing to stress here is men have always known how to behave themselves around women they don't want to sleep with or women who <laughs> fire them. Oh my God, that's you such know? a great point. No, wait, wait. I, want, <laughs> I interrupted by laughing and I want you to repeat that. Men have always known how to behave <laughs> themselves around women they don't want to have yeah. sex with or what was the second one? Or who could fire them? You know, they know how to behave themselves and they have situational moderation built in. It's not like men are just going around like making themselves sexually available to every woman that they meet in the street. They've always known if so, if they don't want to sleep with someone, they ran it in. Or if they could fire them and want to keep their job, they ran it in. Maybe the test for men in the workplace who may be wondering whether what they're about to do or thinking of doing or have been yeah. doing and are reconsidering is appropriate or not, is would I do this to my boss if this intern, if this new hire, if this colleague could fire me, would I do this? Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and that's the thing. Uh, And so, like, for example, uh, I I run a team and I manage people and the people that I manage are all male. None of them have ever behaved inappropriately to me at work. And, you know, it's one of the things that people keep saying to me on Twitter, you know, really, these, these sort of willfully obtuse men who really just don't want to self-reflect. They're pushing back because there's, you know, there's a sea change right now. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they keep saying, oh, you've changed the boundaries, you've changed the goalposts, which is just a piece of meaningless rhetoric. Essentially, 
the boundaries haven't changed. This, and this is what I keep saying. Heterosexual men have always been socialized to ignore boundaries. What's changed is the fact that we, we finally have public accountability. And what's more important is that we're also seeing material consequence for powerful people. Mm-hmm. And that is making them afraid. And I think that that's it. You know, so many of these people, um, I've read a lot of really sort of pisker op-eds in the last few weeks um, that are kind of harking back to a golden age of flirting. You know, they had this sort of like 1950s diners and shakes idea of oh. guys and girls. And, you know, that wasn't the best time for women. Women just had less power to challenge harassment. So, you know, it's it's just this, this false belief that men, uh, that, that men were once upon a time able to flirt and it was always innocent and that, you know, women are ruining everything. And women, uh, may have experienced, women may have experienced that flirting in the 1950s very differently than yes. the men who engaged it. Men were entitled to do basically whatever they wanted without consequence yeah. and did yeah, whatever exactly. they wanted without consequence. And women had to run really defense uh, and never, you know, women are socialized not to say no to men, to, to, to prioritize men's feelings over their own. Men are also testosterone-soaked dick monsters and potentially violent. And women are often, you know, having to factor that into how do I respond to this? You know, there was a tweet that, tweet that ran around yesterday where somebody said, you know, if you're not interested in a guy, just say no. And someone tweeted out all these examples of women who told the guy who flirted with them on the street to leave them alone and got killed. You know, Joe, it's just, it's that whole thing that men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men are going to kill them. It's, it's just, you know, to me, it's, it's just, it's crazy. And one of the great things about this whole, you know, obviously everything that's happened with sexual harassment lately, it's been, it's been a really painful time for women. But what's been amazing is, has been this continued sustained public dialogue and one of one of the great things that's come out of it has been a conversation about what women call safety work that men just aren't aware of which Mm. are all the various strategies that we employ invisible strategies that men are so used to just you know seeing as as how women behave but it's things that we will you know we're actually doing to remove ourselves from harm you know Mm. things like you know a guy might be harassing you in a bar and you might still be laughing at him because you think if you laugh at his jokes he's going to leave you the fuck alone you know this you know so it's not always as as black and white as saying no and being able to say no is you know that it it also plays into this idea of like a perfect victim and a perfect response which Mm. is part of rape culture and we just need to just open that immediately so there's two two last points i want to cover quickly you know we have Mm -hmm. a lot of we have a lot of young listeners out there uh, people who Mm -hmm. are just starting Mm -hmm. out on their sex and Mm -hmm. romantic lives uh and you know we also have people out there listening who are virgins and dudes who haven't Mm -hmm. made a move Mm -hmm. yet what does flirting look like brass tacks and 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 a real example what if someone is interested in approaching someone how -hmm. do they make that Mm -hmm. work without being a creep okay well two things um don't immediately start with a hand on the knee or going in for a kiss cold. Those are the two things that people keep saying. Um, you know, read the other person. So much about flirting is about listening. It's about collaboration. And you're going to be getting feedback from the other person, whether that's verbal feedback, whether, you know, that's, that's, that's feedback in, in, in from their body and how they're behaving themselves, how, them, how they're carrying themselves. Um, and I think start from a place of respect. Don't start from a place of what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that was the, the, the thing that I tried to, to, to put across in my article and put across in the infographic is that, you know, that you're, 
what's your intent? Do you want to make the person feel good or are you just going there in there to try and broadcast your sexual desire? You know, and try and relate to the person, not relate to your need to have sex with them. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. The other thing, and and this is going to be a little more difficult to, 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 to address and maybe you uh-huh. as a feminist are going to yell at me now for this and that might be appropriate. <laughs> but there are circumstances where people misread a, a situation, not like mm-hmm. Louis C.K. says he misread situations no. and asked people who no. <laughs> were, that he was much more powerful than if he could masturbate in front of them mm-hmm. and instantly mm-hmm. yanked his dick out and now says, I misread mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mm-hmm. a, <laughs> I think that's not what was going on in that moment. But, no. You know, no. There are times when people, you know, begin to flirt or, or, or initiate a flirt, mm-hmm. realize mm-hmm. that it's not, they're not, they're flirting at, not flirting with, and immediately knock it off, immediately stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And some mm-hmm, of those interactions, mm-hmm. and there are men out there who are worried that some of those interactions where they begin to flirt, realize they're flirting at, not flirting with, and withdraw, mm-hmm. knock it off, stop, pivot mm-hmm, away, mm-hmm. Um, where they're afraid that that may be held up as an example of sexual harassment. But it isn't, right? If you, if you ask somebody out and they're not interested, you didn't sexually harass them unless you continue to ask them out. No, and I think that's the key point there is it's continuation past the point of getting appropriate feedback from the person, the signal to stop. Mm-hmm. And I think that what they need to do is they kind of need to get over their own hurt here because women constantly suffer men's inappropriate behavior and inappropriate advances. You know, and Laurie Penny wrote this amazing piece this week about the sort of the unforgiving minute and the fact that right now it's going to be kind of painful. And what they have to do is kind of learn to take criticism and feedback. And if a woman, you know, says to them, you know, verbally or otherwise, you know, I don't want this right now. They have to kind of use that as a moment of self-reflection and they have to get used to being uncomfortable because women are uncomfortable all the time with this sort of stuff. It's true. But it's important you said you get verbal or nonverbal feedback. Mm-hmm. You get, you get mm-hmm. the signal yeah. to stop because, because yeah. guys, you got to realize women are socialized not to say no to men. Women are also afraid yeah. of men. Like, like you said, Vani, mm-hmm. like men are afraid of being laughed at. Women are afraid of being killed. And so, you know, if you mm-hmm. c- come on to, you know, if you make a pass at a woman, if you initiate, you attempt to flirt and she says, mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. something noncommittal mm-hmm. and, and like that's a sidestep and not a direct no, that's mm-hmm. a no. Mm-hmm. You have to read the no into that. And it's not an insult that she might that, – that she's not saying no directly because she fears yeah. you. She fears men. She doesn't know yeah. you from Adam. You could be the most wonderful, yeah. nonviolent, woke dude in the world. She can't yeah. assume that because there's risk for her in assuming that. So it's really on no. you as a dude yeah. sometimes to, to, to hear the no that wasn't said explicitly. You know, we should go out sometime. Well, I'm really busy right now. That's a no. That means I don't <laughs> want to go out yeah. ever. Absolutely. And I think the, the, the thing to say to guys here is, you know, get used to using your words. You know, you can say to a woman, is this okay? Do you like this? Mm-hmm. And I have to say that like some of the best interactions and actually my long-term relationship was born out of someone saying, is this good? Do you like this? Are you happy? You know, ask for feedback. If you're not confident in the feedback that you're getting, use your words. You know, there's lots of stuff that you can do. And, you know, you'll get better at it. You know, you might flirt clumsily the first few times, especially, you know, if you're a virgin, if you're starting out in your kind of your 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 adult life of relationships for the kind of the first time. You know, you're not it's not gonna be smooth. That's not the way that human beings are, it's not the way that interactions are, it's not the way that conversations are. But it's we're 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 in this this 
I really believe that we're in a new area of accountability right now. And, you know, women like being asked, ask them, you know, use your words if you're not confident. Use your um, words. We otherwise. say that all the time on this show. Yes, and, exactly. and some people would push back and say, well, if you want, you know, if you want to kiss somebody, you don't want to ask them. That's not sexy. And I'm sorry, like getting close to somebody and then saying in a low mumble, can I kiss you? Can be the sexiest fucking thing that one it's person so can true. say to another if the other person says yes. Also helps uh, in this area, I think, you know, opposite sex relationships, even same sex relationships mm-hmm. to invite the no, to give the person exactly. explicit permission to tell you no if it's no. If you're the kind yeah. of person who gets mad yeah. about a mixed signal or something opaque and you don't want to be led on Say to them, like, look, if, if, if it's no, please say no. I can hear that. I won't get angry. And I don't want to wait. I like you. I don't want to waste your time. And you don't want to waste my time. Yeah. If the answer is no, say it. Yeah. And don't you think that that's a wonderful thing? You know, this, and again, I think women are so used to, to guys taking the piss, you know, and pushing boundaries. To actually have someone say, hey, are you okay? Are you comfortable with this? That, that is. That that is completely going against everything that we've been taught to believe about, you know, men about interactions, and I think that that's a wonderful gift that you can really give someone is, you know, to to yeah, to to ask them, but also to invite that feedback and create that safe space for them to say no. Vani Leclerc, feminist writer, weekly columnist at the National in Scotland. Follow Vani on Twitter at Vani underscore Bravo. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope you'll come back. It was really a, a pleasure chatting with you. It was a pleasure to chat to you, Dan. Have a great day. You too. Hi, Dan. I have a question for you. So I am in a relationship with my wonderful partner, who's a woman, but um, and we've been together for a couple years now. However, before we got together, I was in another relationship, and it really needed to end, but it it I just didn't end it when it needed to. And so to supplement it, I started having relations with a lot of my friends at the time um, who were other men. And they are some of my closest friends. And I just happened to be at a time in my life where I wasn't getting something in my relationship. And so we crossed the friend boundary a couple of times. So what I'm not sure how to navigate now is that I know that it's painful for my current partner to see these people and I don't want to hurt her at all, but I am really missing um, my friendships with these people. Um, And I also made the mistake of slipping up one time and drunkenly making out with one of them and I immediately said that that would never happen again. And I, 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 you know, apologized and I told my partner about it, but I just don't really know what to do because more than anything, I just missed the friends that I had. And I feel like I don't really have a whole lot of friends anymore. And there's no part of me that wants any relationship with these people, you know, sexually again at all. I just miss having their friendship, but I also don't want to hurt my current partner. Why did you tell your girlfriend that you made out with one of your male friends at a party drunkenly and ill-advisedly? Why did you tell her that? Because um, I would want her to tell me would if you? she had done something like that. Wait, wait, wait. Would you? I would. Would you? Are there, are there, yes. are there times yes, that it's I better would. not to know? Because if your girlfriend was already insecure about what these men mean to you and the roles they played in your life previously, it might have been a better strategy 
for de-escalation and for your girlfriend's own peace of mind. And so you could have these guys in your life, which would give you peace of mind for you just to like eat that and take that to the grave. There are mainstream advice columnists, you know, dear prudence, who've told people who've had an affair, who fucked someone else and they realized it was wrong and they were never going to do it again to keep their mouths shut, to not shift the burden, the mental burden of that info to not, you know, relieve themselves of the guilt by pouring that on their partner. You know, a lot of times when people disclose an infidelity, they feel relieved of a burden and the yeah. person to whom it's been disclosed feels crushed by it. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I shouldn't, I, I don't mean to dwell on this, uh, but I just think that, you know, maybe a time machine could solve your problem or, or ameliorate yeah. it a little bit and take the edge off your girlfriend's paranoia. Yeah. If you just hadn't yeah. said anything, the relationship isn't a deposition, no relationship of, of any kind, a work relationship, a romantic relationship, a parent child relationship can survive full disclosure and, and complete transparency and honesty at all times. Sometimes the loving thing to do is to withhold something to protect yeah. your and to allow them to yeah. believe you are the person that they like to pretend that you are. Sure. And, and I mean, in hindsight, I realized that that would have caused her a lot less unnecessary pain. Okay. So I let's, think. let's talk about these guys. You're, <laughs> there's really, this is a binary, right? You either get to have these friends in your life or you don't. And you're going to have to, I think, push back uh, against your girlfriend and her diktats about uh, about your friends. It's not uncommon for people to hook up with their friends, especially in queer land. It's not uncommon in lesbo land or by lady land for people to be really close friends with exes, full-blown exes, people that they were in love with and lived with for years, being at weddings and invited and at parties and around because queer land and the queer community – is so small. We're such a tiny percentage of the population that we don't have the luxury that straight people do around exiling exes and previous friends with benefits and throwing them out of our lives or out of our communities because our communities are, are too small for that sure. nonsense. And it really yeah. warps a lot of straight people's lives to have to stuff exes and friends down the memory hole because their partners are so insecure or controlling and it's a red flag when someone says you can't have these friends, these people in your life who are your support system, who provide you with things that I can't as your romantic partner, including people you can go to to blow off steam and vent at times when you're going to need to vent about your relationship. And we all need those people in our lives. It is a red flag when someone starts forcing you to cut those people out of your life because they're just so sad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and she hasn't done that at all. I mean, she hasn't said that I have to stop talking to them, but, um, okay. Well, I walked that back then. Cause know, that, I, that is how you made it sound. <laughs> that's how it sounded in the call. Like you weren't allowed to see these guys anymore. No, I think, I mean, I think part of me just feels guilty and I think part of me is just afraid to like even bring up, Hey, I want to go have lunch with this person or I want to go get a drink with them just partially because I, I don't want to deal with the 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 hurt that I could cause and, and bringing up those memories again. Mm -hmm. um, so it it could just be on me. You know, not not everyone who's controlling is a rager. Some people control by being scary and angry, and some people control by being sad and devastated. Yeah, but there are lots of different ways that people work each other's levers around control. 
And if somebody's always yeah. like going to pieces and having a colossal sad and they know they're going to get their way, the sadder they are, they have this incentive, sometimes subconsciously, to play that shit up. Sure. If you're not going to do this thing that she sure. doesn't want you to do, if she's just upset enough and hurt enough, that incentivizes hurt. Right. And so I think you need to stand right. strong at some point and say, look, I know that this is something that you're going to have to get past, but I'm for me, is it worth it for me? Can, is this something I can ask you to do for us? Because I need these people right. in my life. I need you in my life. I would never ask you to not be friends with someone. We're two women in a same-sex relationship. Look around. How common is it for women in same-sex relationships to be very close with their exes, for their exes to be really parts of their family? So what I'm asking you to get used to isn't something out of the ordinary. Is it the fact that they're guys that she feels more threatened by them? I think, yeah, I think it might be. But, I mean, honestly, I think, I mean, I've heard you talk about it in the past. Like sometimes people mistake a friendship connection for a sexual connection. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the guys in particular, I, I was in like, you know, I think I said this before a relationship that just needed to end. And I, and, and that was back before I had even come out. So I was totally just still in denial of, of being gay at all, which I think is natural for Wait, is, a lot of gay people. Are you a lesbian identified person now? Yes. Oh my God, I get in so much trouble. Whenever we have a lesbian on the show who's fucked a bunch of guys, I get yelled at by lesbians <laughs> because that just puts out there in the world that every lesbian can be had by a guy, which is not true, not true. But I slept with girls before I came out. It's not uncommon, like you said, for queer people to have had opposite sex relationships, sometimes intense ones, prior to coming out. Well, yeah. I mean, I was with a guy for six years just because I didn't I mean, I was terrified of that part of myself. And I, I know a lot of people who are gay now who slept with the opposite gender or sex before finally embracing that part of themselves. So It tends to be more common also among lesbians because female desire is so stuffed down and policed that a lot of women mm -hmm. don't come into the full sense of who they are sexually uh, until a bit later in life. Then, you know, young right. boys are you know encouraged to take whatever they want and that toxic masculinity entitlement results, I think, in a lot of gay guys coming out a lot quicker and, and with a greater sense of, again, entitlement. And a lot of women, right. it takes longer for a lot of lesbian women to really feel like they have the right to be who they are. Right. Or, or like even now, I mean, I have people just recently, I had someone say, you know, my husband thinks that men who are gay are born that way, but lesbians are only gay because something bad happened to them. Oh my God, and so ridiculous. it's like this total double, double standard. It's, it's ridiculous. You know, that's people looking at the fluidity of female sexuality and thinking that that's, and pathologizing it, thinking that there's something wrong there, or deficient or damaged there. And that, what that does, people who do that, what they're saying is male sexuality is the standard by which all others shall be judged. And male sexuality doesn't mm. work the same way female sexuality works. Male sexuality doesn't appear to be or tend to be as fluid as female sexuality, although there is some fluidity out there. You know, four billion people on one hand, four billion people on the other. There'll be hundreds of millions of exceptions. The chances that the exceptions are listening to a show like this pretty high. But generally, broadly speaking, male sexuality a lot less fluid. And then people look at female sexuality that's a bit more fluid around identity and desire and think, what's wrong with them? And nothing's wrong with them. That's how female sexuality works. It's a superpower, not a problem. 
I totally agree. All that said, um, I think yeah. it's really important, you're two years into this relationship, for you to get off the rack, mm-hmm. stop feeling guilty about your sexual history, tell your girlfriend, the person that I am now was shaped by these experiences in these relationships. The person that you're in love with, the person that I'm able to be for you is because of these people and some of the experiences I've had with these people. And yeah. you should not be threatened by their presence in my life. In a way, you should be grateful. Yeah. And I'm asking totally. you to get the fuck over it. Yeah. And that's the price of admission yeah. that she has to pay to be with you. Get the fuck over it. I'm sure there are prices of admission right. that you have to pay to be with her, but cutting all your friends out of your life or people who are very important to you out of your life because she has a sad when their names are mentioned, that is not a price of admission <laughs> that you should pay. Right. Right. Well, I, and I have to do the same thing for her and I have to get over her history too, which isn't that unlike mine. And, and so I think it's something that we, we just need to do together, like the mutual getting over each other's. We have to celebrate our partner's sexual, sexual histories. We have to celebrate our partner's sexual yeah. memories. Uh, you know, the past, your partner's past made them the person they are right now in the present. For good right. or ill. But the people who've had a positive impact on your life, even ex-romantic partners that you're, the, the, the ex-romantic partners that our partners were with, with whom they learned and grew and became the people that we fell in love with later, we owe them a debt of gratitude. We shouldn't be right. paranoid. And resentful that they got to you first because you wouldn't be who you are now if you hadn't been with them then. And your girlfriend might not love the person you are now if you hadn't had the experiences you had then. Right. Right. Totally true. It's a different way of looking at this and unpacking this. And a lot of people, how long have you been out? Gosh, I mean, really just like two and a half years, like right when I started dating her. You're a baby queer. Officially came out. I know. How many queer friends do you have? How many people do you know who are in long-term same-sex or queer relationships? Not that many. Not that many, which is hard. Meet some more. Meet some more. Yeah. And you will find people, like I'm going to use myself as an example, my husband and I who at our wedding, my ex was there. My ex, the guy I was with for five years was there. Wow. And my other ex has been cutting my husband's hair for 20 years. And, oh my gosh. and this is not uncommon in Queerland. You move through Queerland and you find, you know, lesbian couples who the, the, the godparents to their children are their ex-girlfriends who play a really important role yeah. in their lives. You've been out for two and a half years. Welcome out. Welcome to Queerland. <laughs> Look you. around and you guys will find role models that will help you navigate what – you may believe to be tricky emotional territory and risky because that's how straight people feel about it. That's how straight people talk about it. And as queers, we just soak in straight bullshit all our lives. <laughs> and we yeah, have to yeah. look at that straight yeah. bullshit and say, is this the way it is or is this the way they do it because they're crazy? I like that second one a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> or is this the way they do it because they have the luxury? of exiling people from their lives because there's so many fucking straight people out there for straight people to choose from that you can send one away or you can say the bro code is you can't sleep with an ex-girlfriend of mine without destroying our friendship. That doesn't fly in gay land. Yeah. There aren't enough of us for that kind of bullshit. Right. (laughs) Just tell that to your girlfriend and and get over it. And when you go out for your friends with drinks or when you go out with, with one of these guys, friends for lunch, invite her. Okay. Make them her friends too. 
And and that's the thing. I think she would love at least one of them. I think that they would get along so well. And so part of me is like, man, like if you guys could just like we could all hang out and it'd be great. But yeah, I think I will. And it might help her, you know, say to her, it might be a little scary to hang out with them at first, but it'll make you more secure about them when you see that they respect us as a unit and us as a couple. And you can only see that when we're with them together as a couple. Well, and that is what helped me with her her previous sexual partners as well. We went to one of his, his her friend, who was a man that she slept with. We went to his wedding this summer, and at first I was really nervous. And then we went, and he's amazing. And now I feel totally fine with it. And it was really just hanging out with him. And not just he's amazing, that, but your girlfriend's amazing in part because in the past she had a relationship with this amazing person. And amazing is yeah. contagious. She caught some of the amazing right. that she brought to the table when she met you from him and gave some of her amazing to him. Yeah. We should be thankful for our exes. Our, our, we should be thankful for our current exes, not resentful or terrified. It's so much more of a positive way to look at it. I feel like everyone it's, it's all about like lack and, Oh, you, this person got part of you and now I can't have that. And I, it's so much more like, Oh, everybody just, everybody contributes gives to everyone else. Yeah. Right. 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 Well, good luck. If, if nothing else, just make your girlfriend sit down and listen to our extended conversation. That might Oh, help she her. will. I probably won't even have to tell her. We, <laughs> we're, life, we're huge fans of your show, so she'll probably hear it before I do. Well, thanks so much, and good luck. Thank you so much. Bye. Hi, all. Um, I am a cisgendered, straight female living in the Midwest, and I'm calling about – I'm married – um, my husband and I have been together for a couple of years and I'm just calling about something that he brought up about a year ago and brought it up again um, last night uh, that he wants to get a Prince Albert um, piercing. And at first I kind of emotionally reacted to this. I just was like, why, why would you want to do this? I, I know it's like, it's his body. He can do what he wants, but to me it kind of like, freaked me out a little bit. I think also my second reaction was, is this going to change like how we interact sexually? Like, is it going to like feel weird when we have sex? And so mostly I just want to uh, know if uh, either you, Dan, if you've had any experience with others who have this piercing, or if you know anyone who has this piercing and know if it has affected them physically or sexually, either uh, positively or negatively. I'm mostly just concerned, like, what the healing process is, if it, like, completely changes the way that, you know, their penis reacts or anything. I guess I don't know much about it. I was looking it up online, and I hear both sides. This is the Memory Lane show talking earlier about the first guy who kissed me and now I get to talk about I have an ex-boyfriend. We were together for a year and he had a PA, a Prince Albert piercing. For those of you who don't know what that is or what that looks like and don't want to Google it at work, it is a piercing where you make a hole in the urethra close to the piss hole, the pee hole in the urethra, and you put a ring through it and the brand new hole heals up and the ring stays in place. It's like a nose piercing but for your Dick, fun fact, you will pee out both holes. Fun fact, you will come out both holes. So you will have to, if you're standing in a urinal and you have a PA, use your thumb to cover your bonus hole 
so that the pee doesn't go in two great directions. Uh, and when you come, you can just blow all over the place. All that said, when it comes to sex, it was a big, fat, nothing burger. It hardly impacted sex at all. When someone has an erection, their dick doesn't turn to rock. It doesn't become this marble phallus and the ring is sort of sitting there on top of it and it's going to be very awkward and going to grind against the dick or grind against you or pinch you. The PA kind of pushes into the soft flesh of the penis, which the head and the urethra are soft flesh. The erectile chambers don't pump those full of blood and it kind of recedes into the dick during intercourse, even during oral sex. And it is hardly noticeable. It's visually, optically, it's very noticeable. But in my experience, physically, during sex, during intercourse, during oral sex, during mutual masturbation, I would forget it was there. Less so during mutual masturbation because you could feel it running over your hand. But up your butt or in your twat or really in your mouth, the pressure just pushes the ring back into the dick. And you will find that it's a big fat nothing. I think, and you are likely to find as I did that, you kind of forget it's there. Big fat nothing. What may be unnerving you about your husband's desire to get a PA is what does this mean? Is this a midlife crisis? Is this the beginning of some new phase in his life sexually where he's going to want to get a million tattoos and a hundred, bunch of different piercings and he's going to be sucked into a different kind of sexual community or want to drift toward a different kind of sexual community than you're comfortable being in? Is this one step toward body modifications of other sorts. What does it mean? Where does it end? He is the person that he is now, the person you've been with for a while, and he wants to make this big change. Is this the only big change that he wants to make? I think that's what makes people feel a little weird when the partner of many years gets a sports car, gets a tattoo, starts doing those cliche things, those cliche midlife crisis things because they're doing one. What's next? How much change is coming your way? I think this is change that you can live with. And I think you'll be more comfortable with this change if you can get some clarity from your husband about how much change is coming your way. Hi, Dan. This is uh, in response to the woman who was uh, bothered by her husband not doing his fair share of the chores around the house. My wife and I both hate doing chores, but we both want a clean house and we really have to force ourselves to do these things. So we've made a checklist, like a spreadsheet with a list of things. And we make an effort, we just schedule it, we go through the whole list together, and, and that way it turns out pretty equal. And, and if he really believes in gender equity, he'd have no problem doing something like this. Also, there's an article in Harper's Bazaar called Women Are Nags Are Just Fed Up, and it's about this exact issue. I recommend she read it and, and show it to her husband, and it goes into the idea of emotional labor and the inequity uh, with that. This is a response to the man in episode 579, whose girlfriend uh, won't go down on him. Uh, how is your hygiene? I once dated a guy, everything was awesome, but he, I swear, just never washed his balls. And so I'm someone who enjoys giving blowjobs, but I had no interest in going down on him because it just smelled like balls all up in my face when I would go down there. So that's just a thought. Hey, uh, this is a comment in regards to the most recent episode about the girl that wants her coworker or whatever that she's attracted to to go down on her but not have anything to do with his dick. As a man, that would be totally hot. I would totally do that. And I think it would be what I didn't hear Dan say, and maybe I missed it. I heard him say something about him jacking off later. Like, why can't he play with himself while he's going down on her? That's her not having anything to do with his dick. But he could have something with his dick. I love to eat my wife out and fucking jerk off while 
I'm doing it. It's one of my favorite things. If I was in that situation and that girl wanted me to do that to her, I would fucking do that. I would do that shit. All right, we're about to leave it there, but not quite yet because we want to remind everybody that we are doing a live Christmas spectacular show at Portland's Revolution Hall on December 21st, Thursday night at 8 p.m. Join us. I will be there. Santa and the Pain Deer will be there. The Little Hummer Boy will be there. Comedian Caitlin Weyerhauser will be there and singer Carsey Blanton will be there. We have a big holiday spectacular for you. Lots of gifts and prizes and giveaways and the human menorah. You will want to be there for our happy holidays live show, December 21st revolution hall, go to savagelovecast.com and click on events for information and tickets. Also at savagelovecast.com, you can subscribe to the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. You can also give the gift of the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast to friends that you know who listen to the micro edition of the show and would love to have the twice as long ad free version of the Savage Lovecast under their tree or in their stocking stuffed up an orifice for them this Christmas. Go to savagelovecast.com to subscribe. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. And if you like my political rants at the top of the show, you should be listening to my other podcast. It is called Blabbermouth. It is hosted every week by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eli Sanders, me and Eli and Rich Smith. We discuss the week's news and we take the piss out of each other. It's fun. It's about politics. It's interesting. It's informative. Eli's really smart. And you should subscribe also to Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Vonnie LeClark on Twitter at Vonnie underscore Bravo. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having me.